Hello and welcome to Forum 154's platform for ideas and debate. My name is Dr. Amar Khalif and I am the curator of Forum, also known as Dr. O or anglicized as Omar Khalif. This year's forum, titled To Catch Flying Horses from the Sky, The Impossible Task of Dreaming in the Present, came to me in a hallucination. It was an invitation to think through the impossibilities of extending and thinking, to conceive of what it would mean to imagine a context not for tomorrow or not from the yesteryears, but of today. Our second session, narrating our Pan-African connections, came to me probably while sitting at Lubaina Hamid's dining room table, probably smoking a little bit too profusely, probably speaking a little bit too much. But in that moment, a connection, a friendship was born listening to and relating to stories of other incredible friendships that Lubaina had developed over the years, particularly with two individuals, Claudette Johnson and Marlene Smith. Today's session is moderated by Lubaina Hamid, Turner Prize-winning artist and curator, although perhaps exhibition maker might be more appropriate a term. We've often debated whether curating came into Lubaina's orbit as a practice that emerged out of a necessity as opposed to a will or desire. Still, it's important to remember the incredible work that Lubaina Hamid has contributed to the cultural canon of British art and particularly black British art and black British women's art in relation to what we are discussing today. A moment for Paul's a breath. Narrating our Pan-African Connections, an exhibition at Icon Gallery or the Herbert Art Gallery. We are history. And that history, those stories, may well have been lies. At least that was what it was in my case. But we now live in a world where the lie can be interrogated, prodded and upturned. At least that is what Lubaina Hamid has taught me. Over years of friendship, most of which may have been a friendship that occurred or emerged before we may have even met or known of each other's existence, or indeed I mean her knowing of my existence, I have come to follow and cherish the words of this artist. In 1989, in the afterword to the catalogue to the 1985 exhibition, The Thin Black Line, which Hamid curated at the ICA in London, she noted, There has to be a strategy for the 90s. Black women artists must push themselves, and more especially their work, much further, beyond the boundaries set in the last 100 years, from the cusp of modernism to the present day. Standing now, more than 30 years later, we must ask, where are we? I have invited Lebena to convene a conversation with two seminal figures to discuss what it means to negotiate one's individual practice in relation 
to the very idea of the collective. Our two speakers today are Claudette Johnson, whose inspiration is drawn from multiple seats of reference, the literary through to the personal, and of course, the mirror, that which offers a site of imagination for Johnson's self-portraits. Johnson's singular practice notably gives, indeed offers, presence to the lives of black women and sometimes men. They emerge in her beautiful large-scale drawings, works that one could argue tender a different story of the black human experience in Britain, an act that is also explored in Johnson's self-portraits. Her work is an experience in polyphony. A co-founder of the BLK Group, which was founded in the Midlands, Johnson was the only woman from the BLK Group to speak at the first National Black Artist Convention in Britain. Also speaking today is Marlene Smith, an artist and curator who has been actively working since the early 1980s. She joined the BLK Group in 1982 and has worked as a curator and director across the UK over several years. Smith has led research programs for Black Artists and Modernism, a collaborative research project run by the University of the Arts, London and Middlesex University. She first met Claudette Johnson in the summer of 1982 and Lebeda Hamid that same autumn at the first National Convention of Black Art. She lives and works in Birmingham. I invite them both to invite you into their world. What I'd like to do, really, is give you a gift, really, where Claudette and Marlene and I are going to pretend that you're not here. <laughs> and we're going to pretend that we're at my dining room table, or we can pretend we're at the dining room table in 1980, whatever it was, in <laughs> Elspeth Road, or we could pretend we're at the dining room table in Preston. But we're going to pretend that's what we're doing. And... What I proposed for us to do is to read some texts that take us back a little bit, take us deep sometimes, and help us, all three of us, talk about our work. I think it's important to me, and I know it's important to all of us, that when we're speaking in public, as well as we do quite a lot when we're speaking in private, is to talk about the making, talk about the work, as artists do, and not be cornered into being uh, historians. The point is, though, that Marlene Smith, I think, is the only person that was there and who could also write what happened. I, I was there, but I can't write things. <laughs> I, I can write very poetic texts, you know, much admired, I'm sure, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I can paint paintings. And Claudette can talk about what happened there and how, we, how she felt and what she was doing. But I think, and I think Claudette thinks as well, that only Marlene can write it. And don't let any uh, art historians tell you otherwise, because none of them were there. <laughs> we were there. And even though art historians can write, they weren't there. And it was a very important time in that we were aware and not aware 
of history. We were very aware of the history of art, the given history of art. We were very aware of our own histories of art. And we were very aware that we wanted to change things. But we, most of all, wanted to make work, make work with other people, and show this work. I would say probably the most foolish thing of all was that we, it never occurred to us to sell this work. <laughs> we thought that we'd make it and we'd show it, and this is what would change things. That, it, that conversations would happen between each other, between the work, between people who loved to look at things, between people who didn't know that they loved to look at things. And this eventually, which I think we thought would take about oh, a year or two, um, and we're talking the very early 1980s, this would change the whole cultural landscape. We miscalculated. And I think, I would say that was, that was serious, that we miscalculated. But I think here we are today. Are, the three of us are here. Some people are not here. And that, for me, is the biggest reason for being upset about miscalculating, that there are women like Maud Salter. You know, and I had plenty, plenty, plenty of arguments with Maud Salter about everything from art to breakfast to dogs to houses to everything. But she isn't here, and that's serious. And Brenda Agard is not here, and that's serious. And Donald Rodney is not here, and that's serious. And all those people are younger than me. So time and time again, I need to make that clear, that we're very patient, clearly, the three of us. Very gentle, patient people. And so we don't like to be talked about as angry, dangerous. We're patient people. Yeah, so I think that's very, very important to say, that we're, we live our lives, I think, every day in the now, in the future, and, then in, and in the past simultaneously. And some of the way that this manifests itself are in the texts that we read and have read to each other or to ourselves or I'm sure to their children, over this number of years that we've known each other. So I'd like to, for us to sort of do that as if we were sitting at the dining room table and just read some things and then talk about them and see how it goes. So Claudette has volunteered <laughs> to be... invited. <laughs> Sorry, was invited to, <laughs> to, begin <laughs> to begin to talk. So I'm going to start with a text from um, Tony K. Bambara, who was um, a really important writer for me, especially as a young woman in my early 20s. I um, came across her work while I was still a student at Northampton uh, University. And loved it. And she's a, she was an African-American writer. Like Ben was saying, unfortunately, she's not here with us anymore. But um, her writing still shines. I've chosen her partly because I think, and the, the only word for it is sass, some of the sass in her writing then came to inhabit some of those early works, I think. I mean, I'm, I'm going to, but I don't, I can't do an American accent, so I'm not going to try. I've got two sections I want to read to you. So this one is The Johnson Girls. So this book, um, Gorilla, My Love, is a series of short stories that, that she wrote. Okay. One day... 
say sugar, licking the tomato sauce off her arm. What I want is going to be on the menu, served up to my taste and all on one plate, so I don't have to clutter up the whole damn table with a teensy bowl of this and a plate of extra that and a side order of what the hell. She shimmy her buns on the top of the dresser and plants her feet in the bottom drawer. Because let Sister Sugar hit you bitches, living a la carte is a trick. Okay, so that's the first one. And then the second one is, um, is from a story called, well, the title story, Gorilla My Love. And it's, the, the narrator is a, it's an adolescent, we don't know her, her age, we don't even know that she's a she until quite far into the text. But she's gone with her brother and a friend to a cinema, expecting to see a film called Gorilla My Love. But it turns out to be King of Kings. I don't know if anyone knows, King of Kings was a Hollywood epic telling the story of Jesus. So, yeah, so they, the film started and they realise it's not Gorilla My Love. It's nothing to do with gorillas. It's not, it's not going to be an action movie. It's just going to be this religious epic. And they start kicking off and they're causing havoc in the cinema. <laughs> and then someone comes down to deal with them. This here, the coloured matron, Brandy, and her friends call her Thunderbuns, she do not play. She do not smile. So we shut up and watch the simple-ass picture. Which is not so simple as it is stupid, because I realise that just about anybody in my family is better than this God they're always talking about. My daddy wouldn't stand for nobody treating any of us that way. My mum especially. And I can just see it now. Big brood up there on the cross talking about forgive them daddy because they don't know what they are doing. And my mama say, get down from there you big fool. What do you think this is, playtime? And my daddy yelling to granddaddy to get him a ladder because big brood acting a fool. His mother's side of the family showing up. And my mama and her sister, Daisy, jumping on them. Romans beating them with their pocketbooks. And hunker bubba telling them folks that they, on their knees, they better get out of the way and go get some help or they're going to get trampled on. <laughs> and granddaddy Vale saying, leave the boy alone. If that's what he wants to do with his life, we ain't got nothing to say about it. Then Aunt Daisy giving him a taste of that pocketbook, fussing about what a damn fool old man granddaddy is. Then everybody jumping in his chest like that time Uncle Clayton went in the army and came back with only one leg, and granddaddy says something stupid about that's life. And by this time, Big Brood off the cross and in the park playing handball or scully or something, and the family in the kitchen throwing dishes at each other screaming about, if you hadn't done this, I wouldn't have had to do that. And me in the parlor trying to do my arithmetic, yelling, shut it off. <laughs> I'm, that. I'm hoping we can just all talk about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you know that? Do you know that story? I that? do know that story, but it's a long time since I read it. Mm. So it's coming back to me slowly, but, but it is a long time. Oh, and what does it do? What does it do to you when, when, you, when you're reading it? What does it do? I love it that technically she's working like, like any modernist here, that it's a kind of stream of consciousness, there are things flowing in and out of each other, thoughts flowing in and out of each other, 
And it, it was the complexity of what's being said in this fantastically accessible language. And at the same time, it's very precise African-American vernacular that belongs to a, a certain moment in history, mm. um, that she pulled all that together and brought it, you know, made it so alive, that was, that was a kicking off point for me. That was, that was where I began, that's where I thought, ah, I can bring this into my work, this is what I can do. You know, I, can t I, I know these people, I know what they're talking about, I, yeah. I understand that moment of thinking, why the sacrifice? <laughs> Save yourself, you know. <laughs> I understand that. So, okay. Yeah, it just resonated. And you, did, you, did you used to find yourself sort of in, in the making space reading, or, or, or were these two things separate things? Do you know, mm -hmm. Did you actually bring the text into the making space? I don't think I did, you know. I no, think I did all the reading at home. I did a lot of reading in those days, but yeah, mm -hmm. it wasn't usually in the studio. In the studio, I was just making the iPad, I and does that happen to you? Did you? It's very similar to Claudette in that I, I never did bring the studio and the reading together. Oh. It's only very recently that I've allowed myself to do that and been fearless about what, what one might do to the other. But oh. um, in the 80s, I devoured books. Oh. And like Claudette, a lot of the books that was, were available to me at the time were African-American writers. Mm. And so what I did, when Claudette was saying that she didn't, couldn't do an American accent, what I do is I imagine it in the Caribbean vernacular. And so it's very different. You writing it would obviously would, be, would change it completely. But in my, in my mind's eye, I could see the correlation between the generation <coughs> of black women that somebody like Tony, Tony Cadet, or I'm, I'm going to talk, I'm going to be reading from the Blue Style from Tony Morrison. I often found myself imagining their grandmothers speaking the way that my grandmother speaks. Mm. And I'm from the Caribbean, my parents are Jamaican. But I didn't take the book to art college with me. What, actually, that's not quite true. I do have an, an image of myself as a 18 to 21 year old with a huge bag and with a, a wrap on my head bigger than me. <laughs> <laughs> and in the huge bag would be a number of books, actually. One of the, one, one of the books that I carried around with me religiously in the latter half of my, because I, I was studying at Bradford, and then I went from Bradford to London, because was, everything was happening, and I just didn't, couldn't bear to be left out. So the year of, of Thin Black Line, 1985, I spent that year, 85 to 86. I should have been in Bradford, and I was in London. But I remember carrying around, sorry, so I, I split my time up. So I took a year out and I had to go back later and finish my degree. So I, I'm not sure when Rashida Reen's Making Myself Visible came on, became available, but I certainly do remember that that was one of the books that I carried around with me religiously because it just made me feel more real mm. and less able to disappear or to be dismissed. Mm. So the books were there as sort of ammunition Mm -hmm. in my bag, but not ever taken out and read in that contested space. I called the, the studio when I was studying at, at Bradford was a contested space, and I felt very vulnerable in that space. And having these pieces of ammunition in my bag just helped me to step a bit more confidently around mm -hmm. the, the college. Down the corridors. Down the corridors. <laughs>
Why don't you read some of the Toni Morrison and then we can. Mm. Okay, so <laughs> this is from The Bluest Eye. It's Toni Morrison's first novel and it was the this was the first piece of writing that really got me excited about possibility. Quiet as it's kept, there were no marigolds in the fall of 1941. We thought at the time that it was because Picola was having her father's baby that the marigolds did not grow. A little examination and much less melancholy would have proved to us that our seeds were not the only ones that did not sprig sprout. Nobody's did. Not even the gardens fronting on the, on the lake showed marigolds that year. But so deeply concerned were we with the health and safe delivery of Picola's baby, we would think of nothing but our own magic. If we planted the seeds and said the right words over them, they would blossom and everything would be all right. It was a long time before my sister and I admitted to ourselves that no green was going to spring from our seeds. Once we knew, our guilt was relieved only by fights and mutual accusations as to who was to blame. For years, I thought that my sister was right. It was my fault. I had planted them too far down in the earth. It never occurred to either of us that the earth itself might have been unyielding. We had dropped our seeds in our, little, our own little pot of black dirt, just as Piccola's father had dropped his seed in his own pot of black dirt. Our innocence and faith were no more productive than his lust or despair. What is clear now is that of all of that hope, fear, lust, love and grief, Nothing remains but Piccola and the unyielding earth. Charlie Breedlove is dead, our innocence too. The seeds shriveled and died, her baby too. There is really nothing more to say except why. But since why is difficult to handle, one must take refuge in how. Autumn. Nuns go by as quiet as lust, and drunken men and sober eyes sing in the lobby of the Greek hotel. Rosemary Vellanucci, our next door friend, who lives above her father's cafe, sits in a 1939 Buick eating bread and butter. She rolls down the window to tell my sister Frida and me that we can't come in. We stare at her, wanting her bread, but more than that, wanting to poke the arrogance out of her eyes and smash the pride of ownership that curls her chewing mouth. When she comes out of the car, we will beat her up and make red marks on her white skin, and she will cry and ask us do we want to pull down her pants. We will say no. We don't know what we should feel or do if she does, but whenever she asks us, we know it's, she is offering us something precious and that our own pride must be asserted by refusing to accept. School has started and Frida and I get new brown stockings and cod liver oil. Grown-ups talk in tired, edgy voices about Zach's coal company and take us along in the evenings to the railroad tracks where we fill burlap sacks with tiny pieces of coal lying about. Later, we walk home, glancing back to eat, to see the great carloads of slag being dumped, red hot and smoking onto the ravine that skirts the steel mill. The dying fire lights the sky with a dull orange glow. Frida and I lag behind, staring at the patch of colour surrounded by black. It is impossible not to feel a shiver when our feet leave the gravel path and sink into the dead grass in the field. Our house is old, cold and green. At night, a kerosene lamp lights one large room. The others are braced in darkness, peopled by roaches and mice. Adults do not talk to us. They give us directions. They issue orders without providing information. When we trip and fall down, they glance at us. If we cut up or bruise ourselves, they ask us, are we crazy? When we 
catch colds, they shake their heads in disgust in our, at our lack of consideration. How, they ask, do you expect anybody to get anything done if you all are sick? <laughs> we cannot answer them. Our illness is treated with contempt, foul black draught and castor oil, which blunts our minds. When on a day after a trip to collect coal, I cough once loudly through bronchial tubes already packed with tight with phlegm, my mother frowns. Great Jesus, get on into that bed. How many times do I have to tell you to, to wear something on your head? You must be the biggest fool in the whole town. Frida, get some rags and stuff that window. Frida restuffs the window. I trudge off to bed, full of guilt and self-pity. I lie down in my underwear. The metal in my black garters hurts my legs, but I do not take them off, for it's too cold to lie, in, to lie stockingless. It takes a long time for my body to, re to heat its place in the bed. Once I have generated a silhouette of warmth, I dare not move, for there is a cold place one half inch in any direction. No one speaks to me or asks how I feel. In an hour or two, my mother comes. Her hands are large and rough, and when she rubs Vic's salve on my chest, I'm rigid with pain. She takes two fingers full of it at a time and massages my chest until I am faint. <laughs> Just when I think I will trip over the over into a scream, she scoops out a little of the salve on her forefinger and puts it in my mouth, telling me to swallow. A hot flannel is wrapped around my neck and chest. I'm covered up with heavy quilts and order to sweat, which I do promptly. <laughs> <laughs> Later, I throw up and my mother says, what did you puke on the bedclothes for? Don't you have sense enough to hold your head out of the bed? Now, look what you did. You think I've got time for nothing but washing up your puke? The puke swaddles down the pillow onto the sheet, green-grey with flecks of orange. It moves like the insides of an uncooked egg, stubbornly clinging to its own mass, refusing to break up and be removed. How, I wonder, can it be so neat and nasty at the same time? My mother's voice drones on. She's not talking to me, she's talking to the puke, but she's calling it my name. <laughs> Claudia. She wipes it up as best she can, and puts a scratchy towel over the large wet place. I lie down again. The rags have fallen from the window crack and the air is cold. I dare not call her back and I'm reluctant to leave my warmth. My mother's anger humiliates me. Her words chafe my cheeks and I am crying. I do not know that she's not angry at me but at my sickness. I believe that she despises my weakness for letting the sickness take hold. By and by I will not get sick. I will refuse to. But for now, I am crying. I know I'm making more snot, but I can't stop. My sister comes in, her eyes full of sorrow. She sings to me. When the deep purple falls over the sleepy garden wall, someone thinks of me. I doze, thinking of plums and walls and someone. But was it really like that, as painful as I remember? Only mildly. Or rather, it was a productive and fructifying pain. Love, thick and dark as syrup, eased up into that cracked window. I could smell it, taste it, sweet, musty, with the edge of wintergreen in its base, everywhere in that house. It stuck along with my tongue to the frosted window panes. It coated my chest along with the salve, and when the flannel came undone in my sleep, the clear, sharp curves of air outlined its presence in my throat. And in the night, when my coughing was dry and tough, feet padded into the room, hands repinned the flannel and readjusted the quilt, and rested a moment on my forehead. 
So when I think of autumn, I think of somebody with hands who does not want me to die. Mm. Oh. Well, Jenny Morrison will be very, 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 very happy. Wow. Beautiful. So we've gotten the power of that opening. Absolutely. The thing with Toni Morrison, I think, just trying to choose something to read from Toni Morrison's, you'll just, there is so much to, to choose from. And mm. I, I just want, I remember the opening of that book and just mm. how, when I first came across it, how it just mesmerized me because the beauty of her prose is just so beautiful. Mm -hmm. I love the way that we don't know Claudia's name until she's puked. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know? Yeah. yeah. It's so sparing. Every word has a role to play. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I remember that I first read her as a 17 to 18 year old. I knew that I needed to know something, but I didn't know what the thing was that I needed to know. Mm -hmm. And luckily, back then, there, were such a, there was such a thing as a black bookshop. Indeed. So there was one in Birmingham, Harambi. Mm. I can't remember what Harambi means now. Is it freedom? Something like anyway, that. I don't know. Um, we'll Google it. Yeah, we can. We can Google it now. Yeah, we can. <laughs> we can Google it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's no Googling. In no. the days before Googling. Yeah. Um, or to go so to the library. You have to go to the library <laughs> and look at the spines of books yeah. and decide based on what that little sliver showed you whether <laughs> it was going to be a good book or not. Sorry, you were talking about Harambi, the bookshop. Uh, yeah. yeah, well, just, just that it was there and that it was my first teacher in terms of black history and black culture. And it, it taught me because it, they just made these books available and I could go and browse and pick things up. And I picked up not Beloved, so not, not Blue Eye, but an anthology of black women's writing. Okay. And in, within that, there were excerpts from The Bluest Eye, and I just loved Toni Morrison to bits by the time I'd read that. Um, I mean, there were other, other, lots of other women as well who I did go on to read, but Toni Morrison is, for me, she's the beginning and the end. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about what you said about you didn't say arming yourself with the with the books. What did you yeah. say? You said um, ammunition. I said yeah, yeah, ammunition. Yes. Yes. You were arming yourself with it, and um, yeah, that's, that's a brilliant way of describing how important those works were. But um, but it's hard to get across what the eighties felt like. I think you were describing this the other day how different the eighties were. But it, it's hard to get across. Um, what it was like walking into the studio each day and being part of such a very small minority, or the only one, the only black student there, maybe the only black female student there. And, and so having these books, having these stories that situated black people in a way that felt true. You know, you, there was an honesty that I, I, you know, that I certainly hadn't seen before. And somehow that strengthened me. I found that strengthening, that gave me the strength to go into those um, spaces and to, and to make work that then I hoped picked up on some of um, what I was finding in the novels. Do you know, just that. Just that um, yeah. um, and do you think now that we, that we are who we are, or whoever we are, do you think, because what, what I think is we, we still need those books in our bags. Mm. Not, not 
I don't know. Uh, I don't think I ever had those books as ammunition. I had those books as friends, I think. But I still feel that somehow we still need that. And I don't know what you think about that, whether how, how does that literature, how do those friends, how does that ammunition inform like what you're doing now? Or if you read that text, does it take you back then? And you, and you understand that woman that you were, or, or does it do something else now? Well, it does a number of different things. I think it works on lots of different levels. Um, I agree with you that we do need, I still feel the need to have, to have that relationship with the literature. Yeah. Um, and I do find myself, because when, when Lubena was talking to us about coming today and, and reading, she did say something terrifying to me. She said, can you choose something to read from today? And that's, that terrified me, because <laughs> I know that I spend a lot of time now rereading things that I, that I read in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And there are certain books, certainly of Toni Morrison's, that I've read several times. Mm. I understand what you mean about friends, because trying to make an image of a black woman in a, in a white environment is a really difficult task to take on. Or it was, it was in, I would, really would be interested in talking to people, younger people who are making art now, to yeah. see whether their experience of being in the studio at, at an um, institution is any different to ours. Mm -hmm. But I certainly felt that trying to make images of a black woman and make that woman come alive was a difficult task and that if I had these, pieces of literature, they helped me to A, imagine her, and B, to know that it's, that it's okay, that when, she's, when she arrives, she won't be alone. Mm. That's what the, I think that's what they do for me, or did for me then, and still do today. When I, when I heard you read that section, it's so familiar, and, then, and yet so, so unfamiliar in the sense that I haven't heard it for a long time, haven't mm -hmm. heard Blue's Eye for a long time. It did take me back to how I felt um, when I first read it. But it also struck me, yeah, just these very brutal, dark th things that she was talking about, alongside there being humour and, yeah. and joy in there. And I think that, that gets overlooked when we think about Toni Morrison and mm. her writing, but you know, there, there is all this joy, joy and, this, and this wit, um, yeah. which I think she shares with Toni Cade Bambara. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I think, yes, it, it does still feel relevant. But now, I'm really, I, I feel really protective towards, towards Pecola and the characters, all of them. I, I, then, I think, I felt closer to my own childhood and closer to, to that time of not understanding, well, if you plant the seeds, why, why won't they grow? And of course you can do magic that will reverse a terrible thing that's happened. Whereas now I'm struck by the sense of responsibility they felt to try and right this terrible wrong. Yeah, now I'm looking at it from the distance of, of having become a mother and, and having all those years of bringing up children and, and, and feeling the poignancy of how vulnerable they were. Mm. I'm going to rock the trend slightly and, um, and, and, re and read um, something that relates to what you're reading and what you're saying, 
but it is work that I read now. And this is a, a short piece by a superb poet, Andre Simons, and uh, he's written this book called Turtle Men. And this passage is sort of about a, a childhood that I didn't have. And, you know, lots of the work that I make is about something that is about how time and histories are kind of all taking place at the same time, but in different places, and that some people are there and some people are not there. I just think this man is very, very interesting. Um, and this uh, passage is called um, Counting Stones. My grandmother had almost drowned when she was a girl in shallow water. When every other island girl was taught to swim, she taught herself to swallow brine, clap at the water, to never go down. Those soft hands, the colour of cream tea, collect stones where the sand meets the hard grass. Each is inspected under her thumb. She only needs one, two, three. Each one goes into her pocket. We are at the longest bay in the west, facing north. High tide has come in, and we have drawn back. My grandmother sits on the sand nearest the mangroves, where the water is shin deep. She unfastens her brown leather sandals and places them at attention beside her. Her faded lemon dress with the floral pattern pockets seems strangely out of place here. Her eyes are fixed on me. I find a white clearing among the seaweed bed. I'd swim over those dark shapes beneath, afraid to put my feet down upon the slippery softness. I jump up and down, water at my waist, slapping an aquatic heartbeat with flat palms. When my grandmother is at the beach, silence isn't an option. Her eyes remain fixed. Through the years, I had heard of fishing boats named after great-grandmothers drifting back home without fishermen. We knew they did not go down easy. Or young folk daring on rock edges as hurricanes closed in and nowhere to be found when the storm closed out. Or those bartered for and stored below ship decks, one by four, by black millions along a well-mined passage towards so-called new worlds. Collateral to be dropped, heartbeat overboard, silence at last an option. Or an empty makeshift raft from a blockaded island towards a rhinestone democracy. Or tens of thousands called towards the Mediterranean from the deserts and the jungles and the holy lands. Dozens upon scores who sail inflated vessels painted the same colour as passports, flag stars and stretched tarpaulin. Washing up as stones onto shore, waiting to be gathered up by grandmothers where the sand has etched a hard border between itself and the free grass. This whale is 27 metre long, 9 ton, 104 year old, charcoal black. Snow grey broad markings decorate her jaw. Fins with tiny floral-like spirals around her tail. She passes by the coast to sing every year during a whale-watching season. She is breaching whale with a mouthful of krill and seawater. 
leaping onto the sheets of sky until her tail dances tippy-toe on the north horizon before clapping hard onto the ocean's back. Then she goes swiftly, deep, belly full of breath, seeking out waterlogged ghosts who have forsworn the surface. My grandmother is Grace. She is stealthy, gliding under pressure between the layers of the dark Atlantic until each open mouth is accounted for. And I just love how that writing reminds me of all those, Tony Kaye, Tony Morrison, all those books that we fed off, that nurtured us and kept us alive, really. And he has given, I feel, I, I know this man very slightly. He um, works in a bookshop at Tate Modern. Um, and he wrote in my uh, catalogue for Hollybush Garden show that I had um, in, in, in March last year. But he somehow has given me a, a, strangely, a childhood that I didn't have and a kind of another, he keeps reminding me of a life that I didn't have. But, and I don't really think about other lives, past lives that I might have had because I kind of don't, I don't subscribe to that. But when I read this, I'm, I'm there and I kind of understand what he's talking about in, it seems to me, much the same way that you both are understanding what those two women were talking about and understand they completely how it relates. But I, I do tend to take these texts into the studio. Mm. And I'm, but I'm not sure I... I certainly didn't take them into the studio at art school, for sure. But I went to art school so long ago that those books were... Because I was in art school in 1976, so a lot of those books weren't... Available yet. Available, certainly, no. Um, and I think that, and that I had exactly the same experience of coming across these books in, in different editions to these, oh, funny editions, uh, meeting Maud Salter, who had also, you know, we all three of us worked with, who was very passionate and adamant that all these writers should be uh, introduced across, you know, across Britain and and also wrote incredible poetry herself. And I think that's something we also don't quite always talk about. Is the people here that are writing, we couldn't have done it without those African-American or the African writers in those Heinemann Black Writers series that my colleague Christina Ayane there is an expert on. Um, we couldn't have done it without that writing, but the fact that we were writing and making here took us many, many decades to, to make clear, to get understood that just because we weren't Africans, you know, living in any part of the continent, and, and although your families were from the Caribbean, originally you were here, that sort of inability to understand that what 
that our different experiences, I mean, our three experiences, are so unbelievably different from each other, different from Sonia Boyce's or Veronica Ryan's or Maud Salter's. All of us had incredibly nuancedly different experiences of being here. That, that it's taken us this long to, I think, realize ourselves how important this is, this experience is, and certainly I'm not sure yet that the wider culture understands how important this is and how many of these, uh, how many connections there are mm. and how many differences there are and that that's exciting and mm, strengthening as well. I mean, I immediately thought of your work when you, when you were reading that. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it just makes you visualise your work. I your, couldn't believe it when papers. I read this. Yeah. I yeah. thought, my goodness me, this man is, this man is writing my paintings. Yes. Yes. And now exactly. I'm reading this and I'm thinking, crikey, I need to paint his writing. <laughs> <laughs> you know. They're a complete circle then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. They're, it's quite incredible. And we're, again, you know, we, we're from, he and I are from completely different places yeah but from some similar place yeah somewhere some I was thinking about that as I was thinking about the way that he describes the place that he's inhabiting it's like it's somewhere that I know yes but it's somewhere that I maybe I only know it in a dream sense of knowing it mm. but it's so his, his work his words are so visible they're so visual mm. So I was thinking about your series of paintings on the ship. Yeah. On the Rodeur. Rodeur. Yes. When you were re reading that, I just, that just came back Absolutely. to me yeah. so strongly. Mm. It's, it's, more like, it's more like a painting that I once did on a garden fence. Bought a garden fence, which was somehow or other I was strong enough and young enough to carry from the <laughs> garden centre. <laughs> How was that possible? I used to be able to carry, you know, eight by four pieces of birch. I don't know how I did it along the Walworth Road. How did I do that? I was clearly very young. Anyway, um, and I painted on this uh, fence my grandmother's foot, uh, sort of, uh, oh, she was on a boat, a, a little boat, and I painted this painting of my grandmother's foot just sort of, uh, in the water, like you do if you're a child, you just put your foot over the side as the boat is going along and it's sort of drifting through the, the water. And it was the story of how she was bought, really, by a Portuguese family from her, from her family in the Comoran Islands and taken to Zanzibar. And, and somehow... You know, I'm always talking to my grandmother. I always was making, um, but I never knew her, making, uh, making conversation between, between us. And, and here was that sort of that moment mm. in lots and lots of things that he's writing. And I think that, yeah, I just think it's very important for all of us. Yeah. So as you see, we could, we, could have talked, we could talk about this and yeah. if anyone would one day like to 
players of an enormous amount of money. <laughs> we will spend an entire day pretending that we're sitting at my dining room table <laughs> and we'll talk about books and poems and how we make things and why we make things. Um, but thank you for um, listening us, to us today. Thank you, Omar, for this brilliant, brilliant idea to let us do this because it's great and we love doing it. <laughs> so thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you.